all of this backlash we're, we're dealing with, like they want us to feel defeated. They want us to feel like we've lost and, and there's no hope. But the truth is, is we're the ones who have won, right? What all we're doing right now is merely defending against uh, a, a backlash. And, uh, but the future is unwritten, but we have movements uh, and organizations and, and leaders out there around the country, right? Local communities who every day have picked up their pencils and papers and uh, are writing that future. And uh, it's an honor to, to stand with them uh, in this age and in this moment. To me, this is a period of time where we are being called into creating this beautiful future that is a future that will take shape in terms of government. It'll take shape in terms of an economy. It'll take shape in terms of how we organize our society and communities and the institutions that we build from scratch and the ones that we reimagine and retool. Hey, I'm ready, I'm ready. I got the energy, I'm ready. <laughs> hey everybody, I'm Lisa Anderson. And I'm Mackie Austin. And this is the Friends for Life podcast from Auburn Seminary. So in this podcast, we believe that relationships, friendships, are what will get us through this particular moment. Today, we're gonna to hear from uh, Auburn Senior Fellow, Stash Cutler, who is CEO of Ben the Ark, which is a Jewish social justice organization. Stash is just a beloved friend and a family member of the Auburn community for a super long time. And Stash has brought another friend of Auburn's because he is not only a best friend of Stash, but also such a prophet and such a key organizer in this time. And it's been great to get to know him better. Who I'm talking about is Eric Ward. Eric Ward currently leads the Western State Center as their executive director. Ask Eric about turmeric. <laughs> um, yeah, so ask Eric about turmeric, ask Stash about just Stashness, and um, then we'll dive in as we ask each of them uh, deeper questions about what they've got in this election season. Um, this episode is our beloveds coming together with their best thinking right now. We're days away from election day in the United States. And as we pass through this threshold moment, how we show up will determine the world we make together. Um, but we are also committed to each other and to you. Um, we are at the last episode that we're going to record before Election Day. But after Election Day, we'll come back to this space in mid-November um, to talk about, you know, what is our world now? Um, regardless of who wins the election, we've still got work to do, we've still got joy, we've still got celebration, and we've still got movements to make and build. And we're going to come and talk about that with Rodney McKenzie and, Char and Charlene Sinclair, um, two more of our beloveds who have wisdom to share. Lisa, I'm feeling that uh, siren behind you. And yeah. You know, how we hold one another in love, how we take deep breaths, even as we sound and hear the sirens. That's what we're here to do today. So thanks for being with us. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review if you're feeling it. We'd love to hear from you. You can also send us an email at friends at auburnseminary.org. All right, then. Let's get it. Let's get it, Stash and Eric. Let's go. Mm-hmm.
Stash, your eyelashes are giving me all of my life. And so I have to ask you first, who's got your back? Mm, who's got my back? You know, I'm not saying this because we are all here together, but I would actually say you, Lisa, and Mackie, and Eric, I feel like you have my back. This period of time when there's been so much anti-Semitic violence that's been building and rising in the U.S., one of the tropes that many Jews have internalized is that we are always alone. No one is ever going to help us. We we are always going to be, um, we're just going to be needing to take care of ourselves and each other and we can't depend on other people to care for us. I feel like that internalized ancestral memory, trauma, whatever you'd want to call it, um, part of what I think has been so beautiful about this past set of years and actually in the decades since I've known Eric is that that has not been my experience at all. And I actually feel like whether it's movement people who I've known now for years and organized with who call and text and reach out and say, hey, how are you doing? Or people who are friends. I actually feel like a lot of people have my back. I feel deeply loved. And I don't take that for granted at all. And I hope and pray that I am part of giving that love back to other people. You know you are, Stash. Crazy love. How do y'all know each other? Where have you been together, Eric and Stash? Eric, you, why don't you start that? I was trying to remember even how we met, and I couldn't remember. This okay, day. look, look, look. I, I've been pondering this one for, for a while. Like, where did Stash and I first meet? And Stash, the first, the first time I met you, uh, I always say it was your place. It was like your house in Portland, but it could have been Moira. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember it was like after some Western State Center event. And so it, I felt like it was in like the 90s. Um, but I can't put a specific date, but I know like you were there. It could have been your house. I might have been drinking your beer, you know, and 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 eating your food. And I just remember thinking it was just this really powerful space of, of women. Um, Sisters in Action was over there at the time. So there, so there was like staff members from Sisters in Action, if you remember them in Portland. Um, and it was just all of these uh, progressives and radicals in my age grouping. And it was the kind of first time that I got to sit kind of in a in a personal space. That's that's what I remember about it. It was like a personal space that wasn't made up of like folks I had, was doing political work with. And it felt like as wonderful, as exciting, as 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 dynamic. Um, you know, there was a time and it, the time has come again, I think like we're strong women, right? Feminism anchored uh, a, a lot of how we saw the world. And 
that was one of those moments where I wasn't just reading about it. I, I remember sitting in that space and, and experiencing it. That's when we first mm-hmm. met. I remember in those early years, there was so much, um, I feel like that was another time of real reckoning around racism, at least in Portland at the time. And there was also a huge amount of creativity, I feel like, in how people were moving and trying to think about how to organize ourselves and how to be in relationship as as really like it's also like really new identities were emerging in our communities. Like I think that I think back to that period of time and thinking about like women and what was happening, like we were that household, especially like we were a very queer household. And even at that time, that was in the early nineties, so much of the trans movement was just beginning to take um, outward shape in a different way. And I feel like, yeah, I just feel like all of that period, that was, that was a long time ago, my friend. It was so long. I was young. I didn't have any, like, like, like just, you know, for those who are listening, I still don't have a lot of white hair. Um, I just want to say for the, for the record, um, black still does not crack in America, but I do want to say that I was young enough then, I was young enough then that um, I could actually grow my hair long. And, and you may not remember, but I had dreads, you know, uh, my uh, clothing of choice was like dreads, some big Doc Martens, mm-hmm. right? And uh, probably like, I don't know what kind of shorts, whatever shorts they were selling in the 90s, it probably wasn't pretty. Um, but I just remember thinking, you know, Stash, I don't know if you remember, you know, I don't think a lot of folks know this about me, but I'm kind of introverted, which you know, I'm a loner, right? Yeah, I have serious, serious case of imposter syndrome everywhere I walk in the world, mostly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, I get up there and I fight for what's right and I speak out for what's right. That's what you do. But my um, preferable space is like sitting over in the corner, like just soaking in people's conversations and and thinking uh I learned a lot. I don't know about you during that period, but that was like a significant period where I was just learning from yeah. so many people, right? It was a point in leadership, right? Where uh, you weren't punished for being curious, for being open, for not knowing things, right? Um, and it was a really powerful time. It was a um, an anchor. I, you know, I think you and I were in the same circles, right? I think we started to really bond um, in the heyday of like the rise of like uh, Holocaust denial and historical revisionism. Yeah. And the Pacific Northwest around the David Irving uh, 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 speech, there were other things that were going on, um, uh, racist skinhead stuff up along the I-5 corridor. Right, we were trying to understand what it would, what it meant to build kind of a strong, uh, progressive network where those relationships weren't just simply reliant on nonprofits. Yeah, hundred percent. Dosh was really cool for those who are listening. I mean, she is now super, super cool. Like you know, West Coast, uh, cool, pretty intimidating for those of us who are 
who are introverted, right? Lots of energy, super smart, um, super courageous. But you know, folks probably know that I'm not. I'm not, I'm not selling secrets here. Um, but I was super intimidated by by everyone. Were you intimidated by everyone? I that's not the word I would describe. I don't say, <laughs> I wouldn't say I was intimidated, but for the record, let it just be known that I am also an intense introvert, which Eric, you do know, even though I can present as a very, very boisterous social butterfly extrovert, but in fact, I also prefer to be alone a lot of the time and quiet. Um I don't feel like I was intimidated. I feel like I was really, really in an active learning space at the time. And I feel like one of the things about that was there was simultaneously an understanding that almost everyone was in a learning mode. Almost everyone was trying to figure shit out. And there was also a harshness to it at the time. Like the 90s, some identity politics stuff in the 90s were pretty, like, they weren't they weren't warm and fuzzy either, but it also, I can't tell if it was the period of time, the place in the country, because the Northwest as a region is so particular. It's so different than other parts of the country. Also just being younger, that was when, you know, I was in my twenties. So, um, I feel like I was just a sponge and wanting to be, wanting to just figure out how to be my best version of myself. This period of time that we're talking about and how we came to know one another, I, I feel like for myself was such a formative, it was such a formative set of years. And yeah. it really, it so deeply shaped the person that I have been on the trajectory of becoming. And you were the first non-Jewish person in my life to ever really not only not only to take anti-Semitism seriously, but to to make it clear to me that you were gonna fight for Jews. And as a non-Jewish black man, especially in the Northwest, that was so profound. It was so, I mean, I, I, I actually, I feel like my entire, my, my entire life as someone who is actively Jewish in some ways is so much deeper and more expressive and more honest and more full because of you. So, wow. I, you know, what is interesting about how you both answered that question about who's got your back is that the concreteness with which you talked about the experiences that made each of you who you are in relationship so embodied it. Um, I want to say one thing, Eric, I would love to see those pictures with the dreads and the Doc Martens and, and you know, we can put it in the and show the notes and the shorts if you want to do that. And, um, and I just, I resonate because I know those times. I know we're all around the same age. And so I know those times. And yeah. I think what um, what also I picked up on, Stash, one of our mutuals, Dove Kent, mm-hmm. said the exact same thing to me um, when our relationship was, was emerging around feeling like 
as a Jew, I feel like nobody, people don't have my back, especially if they're not Jews. And that one of the things that bound us at the beginning was her saying to me, I could feel that you had my back. And it was simply a matter of bringing a bottle of wine. Um, when I couldn't come to the Shabbat dinner, the first yeah. time that she'd ever invited me to, and I couldn't come, but I said, but I wanted you to know that I want to be here. So here's a bottle of Prosecco, my favorite thing. And that's how our friendship started. And so I love the way that you two answered who has your back by saying, I have, you know, we have each other and this is what it looks like. Well, look, that is really beautiful. I, I think that, that feeling, um, is uh, super powerful. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sitting here holding that right now and kind of holding what that means. You know, I uh, I have to give, right, that, that feeling of credit, I'm, I'm going to give, like, to the third world feminists like Barbara Smith, Audre Lorde, right, and those who allied with them, Ellie Bunkin. I mean, when I moved to... Oregon. I moved to Oregon in 1986, right? I moved to Eugene, Oregon, where I think the Black population, right, during the school year, right, probably got up to like 1.5%. That was me out of, from LA, right? And so um, on one hand, it felt so amazing to be like in this place where the air felt clean and it was green, everything was green and the sky was so blue and the food tasted so good. And, you know, I can, uh, it was amazing. And it felt super isolating, right? You, you could go days uh, without seeing a black face that wasn't my roommate, right? And, um, I remember finding this bookstore in in Eugene. Uh, it was called Mother Callie's, and it was a feminist bookstore. Uh, which you know, I, I'm going to tell you, you know, and you know, I was not born woke, right? And um, I had no idea what that word meant. I'm pretty sure where how I grew up in in um, Long Beach, California in the Reagan era, it must've been akin to something as might as well have been saying Marxism, right? And I, and, and you know what, maybe you are, but I uh, remember going into that bookstore and like no one cared that I was there and I would just sit and like read in the corner. And, you know, I came across these writers like Audre Lorde, you know, Alice Walker, Barbara Smith, and I remember finding this one book, and I didn't have a lot of money, but I actually bought the book. Uh, I think Bahati Ansari recommended it to me, who's, who's now passed. I was an amazing feminist of color here in, in Oregon. And it was called Yours in Struggle, uh, Three mm -hmm. Essays in Racism and Anti-Semitism. It was Ellie Bunkin and Barbara Smith. I can't remember who the third person is, sorry. and um, I just immediately felt so connected to these powerful women and they were saying anti-Semitism was a problem. And I was going to say anti-Semitism was a problem too, because I didn't have an answer to all the world's problems. Um, but whatever the answers were, I was pretty sure we're going to come from the, 
the minds and the hearts of, of, of these women. And that feeling of solidarity was, was mutual. I, I just think, Sasha, I don't know about you, but one of the weird things about being in the Northwest during that period was that all of our populations, whether you were LGBTQ, whether you were Black, whether you were Latino, whether you were immigrant, uh, right, whether you were a feminist or all the above, like our, our communities were so small because the populations were so small. It kind of forced us in many ways into the same circles. Like we, we had to work together. Um, and I wonder if that's what made it so intense. There was a way that people were coming together at that time that I also feel like was really, really distinct. Like, I remember, I don't know if you remember, Eric, um, I don't know where you were living at the time. You might have been in Seattle, but did you remember Hip Chicks and Activists? Yes. Yes. Okay, so this was in the same period of time. So this was a multiracial, multi-class, multi-faith multi-ability it actually was really one of the single most diverse sets of human beings that i have been part of a political project with who worked together for months and months and months we literally met in this like office building after work hours under fluorescent lights for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to create a roving play that took place in people's houses and on the streets and in schools, literally with a roving audience. And the play was about sexual and domestic violence and racism and all the ways that structural oppressions of all kind make it unsafe for so many people. And that kind of like, like we worked our shit out in rehearsing that play and doing that play in, I feel like the way we did our work, I want to remember some of the ways we did our work back then, because I actually think that we're in another one of those moments where we can't afford not to work together. And there's also something really, really, I think, beautiful about how people were working together that I hope is part of the movements that we're making right now. That we're not just doing each other. Yeah, go ahead, Matthew. Our last episode was with Steve Duncombe and Pat Gerardo. I don't know if you all know them. And the Center for Shout out to Pat. Yeah, right? Yes. They were talking about all these kinds of creative ways. We have done it. We all over the globe. And we need all that mm. creativity now. We need all the stuff that's worked before and all kinds of new stuff for this moment. And you all are teaching us that. Uh, so here's the second question. Second question that is intended just to remind folks listening that we have folks and we have ways to feel better in this uh, scary, stressful, <laughs> agonizing time. Uh, so the second question is, and I love the story, the story about the bookstore and even about the air in the Pacific Northwest, where do you now go to feel better? Each of you, where do you go right now when travel is limited in ways I've never known? Where do you go to feel better? I either tend to go inside my head 
right? Because uh, I'm an introvert. Or I tend to try to lose myself in music, um, uh, in art. I, I feel, you know, I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm such an introvert. I love when people reach out, right? Um, because I always think, oh, I'm bothering this person. You know, everyone, I don't think anyone is any less busy than me or less stressed than me. Um, but so those are the two places I go. I love those moments where I'm like courageous enough where I like choose to um, to reach out to folks, right? And and to reach out to folks um, that I trust, right? Not because they're going to tell me what I want to hear, but they feel comfortable enough to tell me what they're thinking about. And um, I'm trying to be more consistent in that. It's hard in the middle of a pandemic. It's hard in the middle of all this political violence that is happening across the country. It's, it's hard with this uh, attempt by uh, uh, Mr. Trump uh, to insert like, you know, more hardcore authoritarianism into the uh, body politic of, of America. But um, I can hide in my head, I can listen to music and, and it does uh, comfort me but it's not the same as, as just checking in uh, with folks who have and are uh, still struggling, right? And for the same world, world you are. There's, there's just a comfort there uh, that matters, that's validating and um, reinforcing. And I bet none of us do it as much as we need to. Oh, Lord. can I just say amen? God. Yes. Amen. And I, I'm connecting with you all because I think this is a room full of introverts. Um, <laughs> people who don't, uh, but don't appear introverted, you know, right. present extroverted, but are deeply introverted. Um, yes. Strong. 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 Yes. Strong. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. So the call to reach out. Um, I love the way you captured it, Eric, um, this sort of naming why it is harder now oh, no. um, helps helps us not feel crazy when we feel like we can't do it. And that's why we named this podcast. I what think it that's is. right. And why, Lisa, you and I wanted to do this in the first place. And I've never really thought about it before, but the fact that we're both introverted, but know that it's our friendship that is saving us right now that we tend to pull away or pull in. And yet if we don't hold one another right now, we're lost, but we feel lost. It's powerful. Hey, Stash, where do you feel, where do you go to feel better? So I think the way I would answer that really, like part of me is like, oh, I, where do I go? I go into this empty room of this house that I'm in, but actually where I go is I go into my body. That's where I go. Um, and that's actually really consistent with where I go. The powerful yeah. thing I'm hearing is, and that theme around going in um, and claiming our bodies when our bodies are so threatened is, um, is powerful to me. There's some resonance there. Um, it leads naturally to the next question. 
and it is about what sound or what song um, makes you is getting you through. Slow Coming by Benjamin Booker right now is um, uh, I, I almost don't want to talk about because I almost want folks to 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 go hear uh, this song, but uh, it is a it is a song of mourning and uh, it is also um, uh, a sign of fact, right? The, uh, and the line that Benjamin Booker keeps uh, saying is uh, the future is uh, slow coming, right? And um, uh, he keeps anchoring that sentence over and over with um, uh, different meanings, right? The, the future is slow coming. The future is slow coming, right? Um, and... Uh, it keeps me going. And, you know, I got to give a shout out to uh, the second is uh, Brittany and Alabama Shakes, uh, Hold On, right? And um, uh, the, the third for me is uh, uh, this singer-songwriter, actually, um, uh, Anna Eggy, and uh, uh, out of Brooklyn, uh, who I think grew up in Canada, rural Iowa, um, white working class singer songwriter, but uh, her music right now just uh, resonates. So those, uh, you know, I'm I'm listening to almost everything. A lot of reggae has come back. I don't know, Stash. Are, are you still dancing in the living room? I've I've been doing more like swaying and rocking these these days. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I really am dancing my fucking ass off to be honest. Like, mm. yes. Um, yes. Like I'm, yes. I'm like sweaty, sweaty ass dancing every morning. Um, and I have, I, you know, towards the end, I sometimes take it down a little bit to just do the cool down. But um, I feel like, I feel like my body wants to move full out. Like, I feel like, I feel like, yeah, I feel like I want to move with as much expansiveness as my body will create. Um, and every morning, the song that I listen to, no matter what playlist I do put on my Spotify, um, I start out every morning with Donna Summer, extended mix, I Feel Love. And I just have to say, that is a really amazing song to start off the day with. Um, in case anyone is just wondering, hey, how can I, how can I, I don't know. I, yeah. that's, what, that's what's been getting me through. Wow. <laughs> You know, I have a whole list here now. <laughs> All right, last question in terms of the feel goods. What okay. flavor, specifically, what flavor is delighting you right now? Uh, we haven't traveled, uh, we haven't done non essential travel 
for work since um, early March, right? So uh, uh, Western State Center um, went to full virtual, uh, canceled interactions with folks. We were just really worried. Uh, we travel a lot for our work and we were worried about exposing um, our base and our communities with this COVID-19 virus that people knew very little about then. And um, we shut everything down. So I have, I have not done uh, any non-essential travel since March. And nine months, which may not seem like a big deal, but to put that in perspective, that is probably three times longer um, that I've not traveled anywhere um, since probably 1993, 94, right? Um, I pretty much have consistently spent anywhere from 10 to 20 days in, in the field. Um, uh, since that time. And uh, being home right now has uh, exposed me to all kinds of, of flavors right now. Look, I, I'm, uh, this is going to sound so, I'm about to sound like a Generation Xer right now. Um, but <laughs> it's uh, turmeric right now. I just, uh, see, I, I just saw Lisa get excited too. Um, it's like, uh, Oh, I mean, something about it right now inside my brain. I don't know what it is. I don't know what DNA, right? I have this weird belief in, in uh, reincarnation, but of course I have to distort it and challenge the conventional wisdom, right? I just think the, you know, atoms live forever and, you know, they disperse and they come back together in different forms and, Sometimes they come back in forms of humans and maybe there's some memories embedded in those atoms. I don't know. I like to think so in my head. It, it sounds magical. And somewhere, somebody's atom, uh, turmeric, um, really bonded with them. And when I taste it, uh, look at me right now. I'm, I'm so excited. Like I just thinking <laughs> about it uh, picks me up. So anyway, all to say, someone gave me a turmeric mix that you could mix with like oat milk or regular milk. Um, and I'm not going to lie, sometimes I'll put in the Kahlua and gin if it's like a cold night. Um, but it tastes, of, I, I love it on chicken right now. You can put it, you can put it on my cereal right now. And I seem to be all, all about it. I don't know. I love the way, I love the flavor right now. How about you, Stosh? Yeah, well, wow. Okay, so Eric, that took me by surprise I'm not gonna lie about that and I love that you said turmeric which by the way someone who does and pronounced it correctly and, and pronounced it correctly for those out there listening how do you, how do you pronounce it um I call it turmeric um but I get corrected all the time the I like I I know that it's kind of orangish but I wouldn't I don't know how to cook, you know, I am a full-on utilitarian eater. So what I mean by that is I really eat anything that is give me fuel to like live. And sometimes those are very unhealthy things. So um, I don't have a lot of, like, I don't feel very 
flavors. Although I will say that, um, you know, this is not exciting, but I do, I do love popcorn and chocolate. Those are two flavors that are giving me a lot of pleasure right now. I can buy, or I can get this from a store and don't have to prepare. <laughs> it's the middle of October. This show will post in about a week. So as each minute ticks by, we're nearer to election day. And that means all kinds of things. And then there's life after election day. And that means all kinds of things. And we'll still be dancing and we'll still be God willing eating. We got to. But for the folks who are listening, who are largely either uh, folks in congregations of all kinds, as well as spirit-rooted organizers of all kinds and communities, what we hear is people are just up to their eyeballs in all kinds of trouble, all kinds of challenge, and yet at the same time, nobody wants to have been in the wrong place at this critical time. So are there words of wisdom you might have to offer us as to how to show up in this short little window and then how to, how to move through this season? This is sort of the what you got question. What you got for us? Yeah. You know, folks who, who know me um, know I've been talking about um, this moment in the um, arc of, 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 of this age um, for uh, a really long time. And um, I've, I've been worried about it. And um, uh, I think for, you know, 20, 30 years, now, my friends have uh, been calling me kind of the, the dark cloud, right? The, the predictor of woe, and, um, uh, but in a loving, bright way, right? And um, so I, I, this moment is, is really heavy for me. It's, um, uh, it, I, it, is, it will be a hard moment, and I don't want to ignore that it's going to be a hard moment, and I don't want to pretend otherwise. Uh, but, but I want folks to... Uh, to know other things. I mean, one of the reasons I appreciate, you know, my relationship with, with uh, Stosh uh, is that sometimes you can get lost in that darkness, right? Um, uh, uh, you can begin to take on the, the cynicism and uh, uh, the fear and the anxiety of of the things you oppose. And, you know, one of the things that I feel like uh, Stosh has, has done, Stosh is an engager, right? Stosh uh, doesn't let her friends go so easily. And I'm a person who has um, really benefited from, from that in hard times too. And um, I think uh, as, heavy as this period is, uh, Stosh also shows me another side of, of the movements I'm a part of and reminds me I'm a part of those movements um, that give me like an immense amount of hope. Uh, how much hope? I uh, tell folks that I actually think we've won. 
right? And I don't say that as some propaganda or, or to blow smoke. Um, I, I say that because Stosh and my other friends um, uh, show me each and every day, right? That there is a, a real vision. There's a tomorrow that's being built uh, right around us. And uh, uh, that gives me that gives me real hope, um, uh, Mackie and 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 Lisa. Um, I don't know if you know, but I, you know I grew up uh, in the world of punk rock uh, in the '80s and '90s, and in LA, there's a famous punk rocker who many of us love, Joe Strummer, who was the lead singer of the Clash out of out of England. Uh, he's quoted very famously as once saying, "The future is unwritten." And um, I believe that right now, uh, all of this backlash we're, we're dealing with, like they want us to feel defeated. They want us to feel like we've lost and, and there's no hope. But the truth is, is we're the ones who have won, right? What all we're doing right now is merely defending against uh, a, a backlash. And, uh, but the future is unwritten, but we have movements uh, and organizations and, and leaders out there around the country, right? local communities who every day have picked up their pencils and papers and uh, are writing that future. And uh, it's an honor to, to stand with them uh, in this age and in this moment. And uh, it, it, uh, what more hope is there than in knowing like you've actually already won. We've already won. Um, we're just holding the ground. Uh, we're just creating space so the next generation uh, gets a chance to sing their song. And uh, that makes this burden uh, so bearable, so bearable. I could carry it for decades. Lord God Almighty, Eric. Thank you for that word. Seriously. All right. That was Seriously. a word. Mm. Yeah. I just I'm, I just keep feeling so lucky that I got to meet Eric when I did at the age that I was because the like the truth is I feel like in so many ways Eric was like a fundamental architect in my political formation and I remember 25 years ago when Eric was talking about the radical right and the different parts of the militia movements that were, you know, active and growing in the parts of the Northwest that we were living and all the things that at that time just felt so outside of what was like daily lived experience for many, many people in that region. And I remember at the beginning hearing Eric and being like, what? is he fucking talking about? Like, I knew he was really smart, so I should be paying attention. But then I kept hearing him talk about this over and over again and began trying to learn myself more about what he was describing and um, came to understand how forward looking, how visionary Eric has been, was, is, will be. And um, so Eric, when you say that, and I read that piece that you published about this idea that we've won, 
that this now, it's our job now to hold the space, to manage the space so that we and future generations can grow into what is becoming the future where, um, where things are so profoundly different. That gives me also, um, I feel so much comfort in that because I, because I recognize is like kind of the not believingness that I felt 25 years ago when you were saying these other things. And now I'm kind of not believing you when you say that, but I also know and believe enough in you to know that um, what you, what you say, and that's, it ends up happening. So, but part of what I hear you saying as well is that it's not that we've won so we can kick back and move like, just like peace out. It's actually, we've won and we have active roles to play in shaping this moment and how we show up with each other, for each other, and also with people who are going to feel like they've lost. How we're going to be in relationship with people who are characterizing this current moment as them being the victims, even though they're the ones that are actually murdering us. The people who perceive themselves to be losing everything that they hold dear, even though those things that they hold dear are at the very cost of other people's lives, literally, or labor, historically, or, or all the things. Like, to me, it feels like that is, that is, um, deep, hard organizing work. And it's also spiritual work, at least for me, it's spiritual work, because that does not come easy to think about how my heart is going to stay open to the people who want to kill you, or the people who want to kill me, or the people who want to kill some of our friends that have different identities than we do. Um, and so I'm just sitting with like, I'm going to sit with the, like, how will I live my life in a daily way with the embodied knowing that we've won? And then how, therefore, will that knowing create a different reality in what I choose to do and not do in the, in the leadership role that I have right now in the platform that I have access to? Um, I also, the thing that I do want to say about like how we occupy this space and time for me that feels really, really important to name is that um, the, well, one, I think that we've seen with our own eyes, like we have tangible evidence of how quickly things can transform. And that, that is something that actually, like I am one of the most pessimistic people I know. Like I'm always like the Debbie Downer of every circle for people who've hung out with me. I try and compensate with some charm and sass and a little humor and some glitter, but I'm generally like super Debbie Downer. But I feel, I feel like one of the things that's happened over this, this period of pandemic, in addition to the unnecessary and fully, fully preventable amounts of destruction and death and harm that's happened and disproportionately to black people and the brown people and indigenous people. So the, the other piece that we've seen is how quickly societies can actually adapt to a fundamentally different reality and one that feels like 
it couldn't have been possible. Like the, the, within two weeks, the entire world changed so quickly and no one would have been ever, like no one would have had the evidence to say that that was possible. Those of us that believe in social transformation want to convince ourselves that that's true and some people fully believe that it's true. I, I feel like now, like there's no going back. To me, there's no going back in saying that we can't make the kind of shift that's needed. And the last thing that I'll say about that shift is that I do very much believe that in this period of time, however we're describing it as a crossroads moment or a precipice moment, or the moment where we're living into the win that Eric is describing, but holding space so that that win can really take root and be metabolized by enough people over enough time. I feel like there's some of us who do have enough privileges in this world right now in how we are situated. So for example, I myself, I am a white person. I am someone who presents with a gender that is recognizable to some people in a way that they're comfortable that matches my biological identity. I have enough of a middle and upper middle class now access that all of these different factors about my life make it so that I am the kind of person that I believe will be asked to take and should be preparing to take a higher level of risk in order to hold the space and in order to um, to make sure that it's not just black and brown people who are being murdered and who are going to continue to be the targets of what will be a backlash, even as we're winning. This is powerful um, and reminds me, like I love the peace sign, the peace up uh, from, from Eric. It resonated um, but what both of you were saying so much with what you, I heard you say the other day, um, Eric, at a keynote at um, the uh, conference, uh, the White Nationalism and the Religious Right Conference. And one of the things that you lifted up that um, I want to get us into the next question around is this, in this frame of winning, is... Um, Eric, you talked about at that lecture, remembering that we have won before, that we are not, this is not the first time at the rodeo, our first time at the rodeo around winning. And that in fact, all of the social movements and progress that we've ever known in this country has been because of the movements that, um, that our communities and beyond have, have been at the forefront of. So can you, can each of you kind of give us a, like, tell us a story about when we've won as a way to sort of remind our people about who we are. Um. Yeah, no, this is, this is the hard question and, and um, or the real question. And I, I'm, uh, uh, I'm a little sad. It, it took me so long to realize it. And, um, you know, so glad that, that I, I did, you know, we just, you know, it's, it's not, uh, this is where I think we have to put guilt aside and, and uh, uh, shame and, and uh, personal grievance aside for a second. 
you know, this, this society socializes us in so many ways. And um, one of the ways that it socializes us is uh, uh, to, to try to convince us that we are inferior, right? That, that we don't have any, uh, we, we don't have any agency. It's one of the reasons I argue of, you know, why anti-Semitism is, is such a uh, powerful, uh, corrupted, uh, corruptive, uh, unspoken power um, in America. But what, what I mean is, is that uh, um, I think of, of, of Woodson G. Carter, who uh, was the founder of what was called Negro History Week, which, you know, has, is now known as, as Black History Month. And um, uh, um, Carter G. Woodson, uh, wrote a book called The, the uh, a Miseducation of the Negro in the 1920s or, or 30s. And I encourage folks to, 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 to go read it or at least go read the introduction. Uh, but um, Carter G. Woodson uh, writes in, in the opening chapter something very powerful that has stuck with me uh, since I was in college. He, he says this that white supremacy is such a pervasive system that it convinces black people, and I don't think it's just black people. I think it's black folks, I think it's women, I think it's immigrants, I even think it's, it's white folk. But it convinces us that we are so inferior and it reinforces it, right? That it gets to a point where they no longer have to tell us to go in and out of the back door. We become so socialized that we do it ourselves. And uh, Carter G. Woodson goes on to say, and it's socialized to such an extent that if there isn't a back door, we'll make our own, right? That is the, the power of, of, of white supremacy in America. And what is white supremacy, right? But the stolen lives of, and, and subjugation of, of, of Native people, the forced exploitation of Black bodies and minds and creativity, Right and and the control of of sexuality and and intimacy, right through uh, 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 the social control over women and uh, the reproductive rights of, of everyone. That that is that is the construction of white supremacy. The fact of the matter is this: that America, if there is any semblance of democracy in America, it is because women indigenous, immigrants, people of color, and Jews, and their allies in the white community struggled for it. If there is democracy, the, the very fact, right, that I can walk into an, a non-segregated business, right, or a restaurant, or get on a bus, right, or tell a police officer that he is wrong, right, um, is because those who came before us for hundreds of years, right, struggled under even harder conditions sometimes than we've experienced. And not only did they struggle, right, but there were no cameras around. There were not tens of hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, right? These were folks who were struggled and who, who, were, who were lynched, right, in the middle of woods, right, whose bodies were never seen again, who, who were raped, who, who uh, lived under just amazing amounts of, of oppression. And I feel 
it is the, the, the worst insult that we can give as new social movements is to look at all of that struggle and say it doesn't matter. To look at the struggle of generations, right, of Black, Jewish, Latino, Indigenous, Asian, right, poor whites, right, and to say, like, wasn't good enough, right? Like, that's the white supremacist mindset, right? Those of us who oppose white supremacy, what we understand is democracy exists in this country because we have brought this country to democracy, right? Our job isn't, isn't finished, right? Our job isn't finished. This is, this is generational. We should be urgent. This is not to say we should sit back, right? And so I just say we have to stop being the Eeyores of social movements in the world, right? If we really have accomplished nothing in 500 years, then we really do need to give up, right? Um, I don't think that's true. If there are labor rights, if women can vote, if I can at least somewhat walk down the street, if I at least can contest white supremacy, that's because we have fought and won those things. Uh, and if we have fought and won those things, we can win other things uh, as well. And so I always think about my friends who wore not my mama's civil rights movement. Uh, I say this often uh, in uh, uh, around the days of, of uh, uh, 2014, 2015. And I love that shirt, not my mom and civil rights movement. So, so don't get me wrong. I love it because it signals, right, uh, uh, the rise of a new social movement and a 21st century civil rights movement that is so necessary and so powerful. And I also say, you're right, we aren't our mother's civil rights movement. Our mother's civil rights movement was really badass because they had to function under white supremacy as the uncontested rule of law, right? I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even want to know what that looks like. Um, and so, yes, yes, our movements have won things. And if we can't tell people that we have won things, if we can't show people that we've won things, if we don't believe that we have won things, we have no business organizing people and putting them in danger. We have no business talking to folks if after 500 years we have not won anything. We need to then leave this country and go someplace else then, right? And I don't believe that. We've won. We've won so many things. Mm. We've won democracy into this country. We birthed it, mm. right, through, through our blood, and, and we have a right to it. It's our crown if we choose to put it on. Eh, okay. Mm. I'm about to shout. <laughs> I'm about That was James Baldwin, shout. by the way. But, yeah. you know. But, mm, yes. Oh, my goodness. Stosh. Okay, that's just like, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> it, it have a kind of mic drop quality to it. But I, but. Stosh oh taught me that, God. by the way. Stosh <laughs> taught me that. Stosh and I had, like, right. No, let me right. tell the story. Can I tell this Stosh story right. real quick? Do we have yep. time? I don't, I don't know even what... know where we're on time. Wait, wait, wait. Look, just tell the story. Okay, um, let me let me tell this story. So I, so uh, one of the things about Stosh and I, I know we're going to get there is um, she and I were talking. We find each other in our moments of transition, which is very interesting. So I have this thing. I could go year. I could go years without talking to my friends. And when I see them again, I will, uh, uh, my good friends, 
we just pick up wherever it is that we left off the last time we, we've seen each other. Part of it is because I moved around a lot. My friends move around a lot. We get caught up in our campaigns and um, we get focused on that. But Stosh and I have found each other a lot in our moments of, of transition. And sometime around, I don't, I don't know when it was, Stosh, when you were at um, um, Jewish Fund for Justice do you, in, in New York. When did, when did you, when did you, when was that? Was that like 2005, 2000? Yeah, like 2004. 2004, 2005. So I, I, I went out to, to New York. I was working in Chicago for a group called Center for New Community. And I was like, oh, I know someone in philanthropy. You know how you are with young organizers. Like, I know someone in philanthropy. I'll just go out and meet them. And of course, your friends will meet with you. And you don't kind of understand the workings of philanthropy or anything like that. Well, Stosh, Stosh being a good friend, and I was like transitioning into this new job. We got a chance to hang out and, and meet. And it was the first time right? It was the first time that someone broke down, right? The importance of building power. Mainly my organizing before then was focused around kind of the moral imperative, right? We're going to create a moral barrier against hate, which was important, but it was insufficient un unto itself. And it's part of the reason why we have this white nationalist problem today, right? Uh, we, we didn't beat it in the 80s and 90s because we didn't build uh, the necessary institutional and, and community power, right, to, to, to hold it at bay. We thought the moral authority would, would be enough. Well, I went out there with, with, with myself and I sat down and Stosh broke down her power analysis. And uh, I walked out, of, I remember walking out of that meeting with my boss and I was talking to him and I was like, I just said, wow. I just, I said, I hadn't ever thought of kind of that, consistent like like a power mapping wait there's a power mapping thing that was me wait there's a there's power mapping there's like long arc like strategic investments in in building i that conversation was really powerful and um it shaped uh how i've seen the world right now um and i think this look power matters and uh i learned it that day and what we do with that power uh, and why we tap into that power um, also matters. So anyway, that's, that's one of my Stosh, but she broke it down. And you know, when Stosh is talking to you, it's, uh, she's very clear. I mean, she had done a lot of thinking about it. And then that's when I realized, that's when I realized my friend Stosh was, was, uh, was a badass, right? That she had become like a badass. <laughs> And uh, I've been trying to emulate that power shaping strategy uh, ever since. Not as well, not as well, oh, but, I, oh. but I'm trying. I, so, yeah, it was pretty but, impressive, Stosh. Do you remember that? I, no, it's just another one of the memories that I do not remember at all. So <laughs> great, that, great, that, great that you can be our friendship archivist. That's right, I'm gonna be the archivist. So. I, so I have two things. One, Stosh, if you have anything to speak into what um, Eric said about how we've won, and then we're going to ask you in one minute so that we can keep to your time. Um, to, if you can uh, share a joy practice um, mm. that you have. You've spoken a lot about joy, but we like to leave mm. people 
at the end with a sense of, can I do that? Can I emulate that? Mm. So if you have anything to speak into what um, Eric said about about remembering, and then we'll we'll close with that last, uh, like a brief reflection on the last. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm not even going to begin to attempt the, to add any flourishes to that master class that we just received that was like multi-leveled dimensional. Um, but I will say that I, to me, what feels like examples of how we know we've won and what we're building on is in some ways just like the simple, the simple undeniable experience of knowing enough of us have stayed human. Like we've not, we've not forgotten our humanity mm-hmm. and we've not forgotten that to be embodied in this being, to be in this life, um, as human beings is, well, now I'm like, this is all, of course, my own opinion, like, and belief system. I don't know where it comes from, but like, I, I just feel like we as human beings, we are wired to, to give, to give love and we are, we are wired to receive love. And there's also so many examples of the ways our, humanity can just like as as many times as people in power have attempted to to punish away people's humanity or rob people of their humanity or kill away people's humanity or terrorize people's humanity i just feel like there's something very deep that is in the small kindnesses that just continue to happen like human love just continues to like push forward. And to me, that's not a given. I think that there is a, there is a way in which people could easily and understandably break to the point where we lose our humanity and then create horrible conditions for other people and for the rest of the planet. And to me, it just feels like we're living in a time where at any, looking back on any decade or any century or with any community or among and between any communities, you would see evidence of people who were expressing their humanity with one another in a way that is making this moment possible. Um, yeah. So. That, um, yeah. Can I ask, is your dancing practice then the practice of joy that is part of the evidence of your belief in yes, in how we love? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I definitely, um, the practice of cultivating joy, the practice of having a practice that, that helps manifest joy 
feels to me like a life-saving anchor right now. And the other piece that I would put in that, I mean, for me, I'm doing it every day with dancing, but um, I just feel like, you know, there was a time, I feel like we're, we're less in that time now, but certainly when I was coming up as an organizer, and Eric, I don't know about you, but there was almost this like martyrdom that went along with being someone who was part of social movements that were trying to transform power and to try and bring in a new reality. It's like, and it manifested itself in so many different ways. And I, um, I don't think I ever fully accepted that, at least privately. I would like to think in, in my own way, I attempted to put it out publicly that that didn't have to be the only way to be in movement by being um, only, you know, in a state of depriving oneself. But I would say pleasure is so key right now. Like, to me, this is a period of time where we are being called into creating this beautiful future that is a future that will take shape in terms of government. It'll take shape in terms of an economy. It'll take shape in terms of how we organize our society and communities and the institutions that we build from scratch and the ones that we reimagine and retool to meet human needs that I feel like is totally thrilling. And that act of creation is also, to me, I feel like we have to give ourselves not just the permission, but the um, encouragement to ourselves and to each other to get fucking creative about pleasure. Like, if that feels foreign, if it feels hard to build pleasure, to seek pleasure, to ask for pleasure, to feel like we deserve pleasure, I feel like this is a, um, it feels like it's a space where, for me, it's where so much resilience lives. So, mm. I, yeah. Yeah. Oof. Eric, I'm going to let you have the last word. That was gorgeous. Yeah. So what, what brings me joy? Um, I'm, I'm just going to say uh, the Black Lives Matters movement brings me joy. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing uh, to hear folks talk about Black love and uh, Black love and Black power to, um, to everyone, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a pretty... Uh, powerful, uh, joyful statement, and it, it's hard not to feel joy. Look, I, I have my uh, two feet away from me is is my guitar, um, uh, Betsy, uh, who brings uh, brings me immense uh, joy. Uh, my partner, but you know the 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 joy that I feel. I, I you know again, I think Stosh is is is. Uh, right there. Um, my world, uh, I, I think we have to be cautious. One of the things we learned, I think here, in, you know, learning to organize in, in the Pacific Northwest is uh, uh, 
the steps from social movement to a cult are not that far, right? And I don't mean cults in the most destructive sense of the term. I mean it in the sense where uh, it's very easy to become uh, internally focused in such a way that you cut yourself off from, from the world. And I don't think progressive radicals were, were, were born into this planet to, to be monks, right? Um, some, maybe. But um, our, uh, our role is, is to connect with, with the world, to not be afraid of people, to uh, understand um, uh, the complications of, of, of people and that, you know, there's, there's no purity. And um, I, I just think, uh, I, I think what just brings me joy, I mean, I, I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm thinking of like weird conversations I've had over the lives, right? Uh, the the uh, last month I was talking to uh, a guy who, who used to head up uh, probably what I thought would have been one of the most influential neo-Nazi organizations in, in Oregon, like 20 years ago, I think it was. And um, uh, he ended up leaving that, right? Leaving that world and now is this phenomenal artist and his kids and, you know, he, you know, he often says that, that, that I helped influence him to, to, to leave that um, uh, two decades ago. But I got to say, when, when I uh, uh, touch base with him, when I see some of the work, his artwork, when uh, I see some of the things he's doing in, in his life and in the, in the life of his family, uh, it, brings me, it brings me joy as well, right? Um, uh, uh, how powerful uh, a transformation uh, and if he can transform, right, it means all of us can transform. It means that I can transform. Uh, and uh, whew, that's pretty joyful to me. That's, uh, that means we're, we can still keep winning. We can still keep evolving. Um, and uh, yeah, look, I mean, I'm smiling right now. I'm feeling pretty joyful uh, saying that. Oh. Yeah. I love you, Eric. I love you. Oh, oh my God. Um, <laughs> Stosh, thank you for always. I'm not the easiest person to hang with. It sounds really, right now, Frank's like, oh my God, he is so nice. He is so sweet. I am those <laughs> things. But yeah. I'm also very difficult and I'm very complicated. And uh, like everyone else uh, uh, on this planet, you know, we, we all have our own brokenness. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stosh has been, uh, has always, uh, 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 even if we're mad at each other, right? Because folks in politics get mad, they disagree, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You've never abandoned me, Stosh. You've never, you've never abandoned me. And uh, that means the world to me. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm. No, I just got chilled. Chill. Yes. I, uh, I mean, the, the headline is you, I, I, I believe I'm speaking for Lisa and me, mm-hmm. but you have brought us such joy in this last conversation, this last hour of time. And so thank you so, 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 so much that we can make time in this crazy time to love each other and to yeah. testify to the love that has saved us, 
just to behold the two of you as you hang on to the edge and end of this conversation, having to say, you love each other. Not being able to leave without saying, you love each other. Mm. That's everything. It's everything. It's everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So, Eric, uh, you mentioned Eeyore. We, uh, it's funny, but we always end this podcast with a quote from Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> so it's our little benediction. I don't know how we ever picked it, Lisa, but it's working. It does work. So, I love it. This is our gift to you as we begin to part. <laughs> if ever there is tomorrow when we're not together, there's something you must always remember. You are braver than you believe. Stronger than you seem. And smarter than you think. But the most important thing is... Even if we're apart, I'll, I'll always, always be, be with, with you. you. We'll always, we'll always be, with, be you. with you. We'll be together. <laughs> yes. So thanks, friends. Love y'all. Thank love you. you, big heart. Love you. Love, love, you. love you. Thank you. Big Thank love. you. Thank you so big much. Big love. Big love. Mm. I you kisses. So much love. Yes. Cyber hugs. Yes. Virtual hugs. See, now I don't even want to get off. I just want to say I love you a hundred times. <laughs> times a thousand, everyone. Times a thousand. Yes. Oh, love you, Stosh. Mm, thank you. Love you, Eric. Okay. And Courtney, thank you for keeping it together. Yes, thank Courtney. Courtney. Apart. Thank Podcast you. Podcast almost Mercury retrograde. That's how it goes. So, folks, that's our show. There were quite a few whole worlds in that stuff. Come on. Yes, it was a joy to be with you doing this, Maggie, and it was a joy to be with Stash and Eric, who are wise beyond all years, not just their own. I tell you, being being in this together with you, Lisa, and with friends like Stash and new friends like Eric, this is what's getting me through. So thanks you all for witnessing and being a part of it. A couple of credits uh, and a couple extra thanks. This show was produced by Auburn Seminary and is made possible by a generous grant from the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Foundation. Thank you, Carpenter, for making this possible. For show notes, episode graphics, or to donate to our work, or for more information about other Auburn programs, please go to www.auburnseminary.org forward slash friends. And be sure to follow Auburn Seminary on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so we can keep in touch. Yeah, and the best way to support this work is to share it with your friends. Friends for Life was produced by Lisa and me with additional support from Courtney Weber Hoover, Sharon Groves, and David Beasley. Gorgeous human beings. And speaking of gorgeous, the gorgeous illustrated notes from each episode are brought to life by Claudia Lopez. Audio engineering from Courtney and David with editing on this episode by Lisa, David, and me. So thanks, y'all. We love you so, 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 so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Bye y'all.